This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I believe we have the youngest broadcaster to be on play-by-play cast here today and here this week. His name is Mike Cousins. He joins us from the mothership, college football, college basketball broadcaster on ESPN, and... I think a handful of other things. I know he used to do uh, Ultimate Frisbee, or just Ultimate. I think Frisbee's a brand. He used to do just, he he did Ultimate Broadcasting with Evan Leffler a while ago. If you Google it, you can find him talking about Saucy Nancy, which I don't know what team that is. I think it's Iowa. Maybe? I think Oregon is Fugue. Ultimate has some weird team names. It was like Iowa, Oregon, Collegiate, Ultimate, Frisbee. One of them was Saucy Nancy, and uh, it was pretty fantastic. So Mike has done a handful of different things and has worked his way up through the minor league baseball ranks and then broke into television with uh, some ESPN3 broadcasts, and then one thing led to another. And now Mike is one of the young up-and-coming college football and college basketball broadcasters uh, here across the country. Our conversation is about an hour long, so I don't want to go too heavy on the open today because we want to dive right back in to Mike. can probably split this into two episodes, but we're going to go with one. Um, so let's get right to it. First off, house cleaning notes, as always, at PlayByPlayCast on Twitter, at PXPCast, actually, on Twitter, at PXPCast. You can hit us up, uh, shoot us a message, follow us, retweet us if you enjoy the podcast, and uh, tell some folks about what we've got going on here and what kind of information or entertainment you get out of our 30 to 40 to 50 to today hour long chats that we put out on Friday mornings. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, rates, reviews, suggestions, retweets, all that stuff, always uh, appreciated. And then if you want to reach out to me as well, you can find me on Twitter at Joel Godet, or you can hit me up on email or any variety of other uh, methods. I got a phone call from somebody this week that I reached out to to be a, a future guest on the podcast, and I, I did not include my phone number in the email, so yeah, it's I, it's all out there, folks. I, I, guess, I guess you can find it. But without further ado, I want to get to Mike Cousins, because we go back further than anyone I've had on the podcast. Mike and I first met each other in high school, when at that point in time, neither of us knew we were going to be broadcasters. I think we both had inklings that's what we wanted to do in some respects, but we met at a place called the, I forgot the name, we did it in the interview, not Convention on National Affairs, I believe, Mike knows the actual name, we'll talk about it, Uh, but it's called Kona, it is a high school government program where people from across the country come together and they, they debate policy. Because we were really cool in high school. We go to North Carolina into a camp and, and, and we, we, we have mock legislation. That's how Mike and I met. So we went all the way back on this podcast, which is a really fun one. Because it's one of the, the more back and forth kind of discussion podcasts that we've done so far. Less of an interview. It is an interview, but there, there's more conversation and talking than, uh, than some other ones. So I, I think it's fun in that regard. Without further ado, though, Mike Cousins telling you about what Kona is because we were awesome in high school. Here's Mike. Kona and and youth and government, the program in general, uh, probably finds kids that are in the 1% of high school age kids, not meaning the wealthy 1%, but probably the socially awkward 1% who really enjoy talking about public policy (laughs) and... So it's it's no surprise that the two of us ended up there in the same place. 100%. I mean that, it, yeah, that that we ended up uh, going to Syracuse is a different story, but that we enjoyed doing research on really niche things, I think, was probably the perfect place for two future sportscasters to meet. 
I feel like that probably translates well to what we do now, though, because then it was nerdy, and now it's like our jobs that Google is amazing to us. And that was the logical starting place for a millennial, if that is our generation. I don't really know what the borders of that are, but I guess we're millennials. Uh, for two millennial sportscasters to meet is a place where people love doing research and talking about the most inane and obscure facts possible in public policy. And now we've just gone from the government realm to the sports realm and have somehow tricked people into paying us to do it. That's fair. Yeah, fair enough. For people that don't know, by the way, I don't even, what does Kona even stand for here? The, the Committee on National Affairs? Conference, Conference on National Affairs. So that was the youth in government. Mike was from New York. I went as a representative of the peaceful people of, uh, of the United Nations. This was like 2003, probably, when we first uh, met each other. I think at that point I was already going to Syracuse, and I think you were curious about it. And then we wound up there uh, a couple of years later. Um, when, did the, when did the sports casting bug bite you? When did you kind of figure out that uh, you didn't want to go into public policy for a living, but you wanted to talk about sports? I wasn't really sure. Public policy and the thought of being a lawyer was very intriguing to me for a long time because when I got into youth and government, and for youth and government, before we keep referencing it, people who don't know, it's a model government program. It's in something like 35 states, and you are either a, a fake lawyer or a fake legislator, and it culminates in a uh, conference at the end of the year at your state capitol. So that's the gist. You were an advisor for it, too, weren't you? I did. When I got to Syracuse, I helped start a club at a, a suburban YMCA there and did that for a few years after school as well. But yeah, I uh, I got involved with it in ninth grade. My my history teacher was one of the program's advisors, and I started out as a, as a lawyer in the program first before I went over to the legislative side of things. So that really interested me. But uh, sports casting became of interest to me because I grew up in a household with no cable TV, which even to this day, people still say, Oh my God, like, how did you do it? <laughs> I'm like, what? what? I didn't really have a choice. My mom didn't want to pay for cable. And so growing up, uh, I grew up in white Plains, New York, a suburb just North of New York city. And so I would come home, finish my schoolwork. And then I would most well, half a year, listening to the Mets games on the radio. So, like, Mondays were the worst day of the week, not because it was a Monday, but that was because usually it was the Mets day off. So um, I, I got very interested in that. I listened to I Miss in the Morning. Granted, I had no idea what they were talking about, but it was FAN was the only station I listened to. And I would listen to Francesa in the afternoon and Steve Summers at night, who is still on the air. And, 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 oh, and under the cover, schmooze until 11. I'm a fan. New York. And he always hit the post, by the way. Um, so, yeah, that was how I got interested in it. And I just uh, I listened to baseball on the radio. And now, granted, they carried the Devils. I don't know if they still do. I, I didn't know anything about hockey then, and I don't now. So I didn't really listen to that. But that was really what got me into it was like, it transported me to somewhere else. It was Bob Murphy and Gary Cohen at first, and then it was Gary Cohen and Howie Rose. And I think just the excitement I felt from feeling like I was somewhere else and knowing that, you know, my mom and I would go to a handful of games a year. And it was just something that was always really larger than life to me of these guys who got to sit there and watch the game. And now I was never good enough to even have the dream that the typical sportscaster have has of of someday playing professionally because i was just always so bad that it was never a dream of mine stop it you played at um, least you played varsity <laughs> i played varsity basketball my my claim to fame is that one of my high school teammates was sean kilpatrick of the brooklyn Nets. there you go um so obviously i taught him everything he knows um but, uh, yeah, I mean, I just, my, the first thing I did when I came downstairs in the morning was look to the sports page. So it was just something I had always gravitated towards, but really before going to college had no practical experience doing any sports casting. You went to school though. Uh, you were also, you didn't just do the student media thing. You had the rare, I don't know if it's rare. I feel like it's fairly rare. Uh, you were also a manager on the basketball team. Uh, what's it like being a 18-year-old college freshman who was not recruited by him uh, to be around Jim Beheim. 
So that was in the 2007-2008 season. And uh, the only words that were ever exchanged in that season between myself and Jim Beheim were three. And they were heads up, coach, when I missed a rebound that went over my head and it bounced <laughs> off his leg and he didn't turn around. And so our, <laughs> our interaction was very minimal. Um, I, I became much closer with Mike Hopkins, with Rob Murphy, who's now the head coach at Eastern Michigan, and Bernie Fine. Uh, who, if you don't know Bernie Fine, do a quick Google search and you'll understand why his name doesn't come up all that often in Syracuse conversations anymore. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was a great way to get indoctrinated with a college basketball program and to gain an understanding of how things work. Syracuse is very different. I think it runs a little bit more like an NBA team than a college team where it wasn't so structured, and it still isn't that structured. They're one of the few teams that doesn't shoot around on game days. Players are very much left uh, to their own devices with a lot of things. Um, but it, it's, it's been great as far as building relationships now that I'm calling games of the ACC and Mike Hopkins is still there and the sports information director, Pete Moore, is still there. Um, so it was fun. It was fun to be involved with basketball and get to know some of the players who were in the program and occasionally get thrown into a drill as a very undersized big man. Um <laughs> Try, trying to guard Orinze Onuwaku or Christoph Onjanat. I have no idea where he's playing these days. Probably Belgium. Um, but it, right. It, but it was fun. It was, it was a good experience to get to do it. Um, and uh, ultimately, I decided that I wanted to stop doing it because rebounding and filling up Gatorade cups wasn't getting me any closer to being a sportscaster. So it was a good experience for a year. Uh, and then I turned my attention fully into student radio. What did you get out of it from a broadcast standpoint, though? I, I mean, did you learn things being around a program that now as a broadcaster uh, gives you an insight or makes you feel smarter in a sense just because there's something inside that the general person doesn't know that you've seen? It may not be as much of things that I can translate into useful information on the air, game in and game out. It's more obscure stuff that if it ever does pop up in the course of a game, you know, I, I know who Todd Blumen, the video coordinator, is for the Syracuse basketball team. I don't know that every person who announces a Syracuse game knows who that is. I'm not saying that to brag. I just, having been around, know who that is. Um, so, like, when you look at a bench, and th- this is a, a, a piece of uh, just obscure stuff that really interests me, of, like, who sits in the first seat on a bench for a basketball team, and... Having been there, I know that it's Brad Pike, the longtime athletic trainer who sits there, but it used to be the head manager when I was with the team. So like you get to know those things. So now every game that I call, I become more and more interested in who makes up the first five seats on a bench for a basketball team. And I might remember or write down who's the strength coach for a basketball team or who's the trainer, just because if that does ever pop up and look, uh, Georgia and Missouri had a fight last week between Dobos, between directors of basketball operations. And so like the, and the announcers on that game, I want to say Matt Stewart and Barry Booker were on the call. Um, it was an ESPN game and they knew who those guys were. And I'm thinking, man, that they're really on top of their game. So like rarely will Dobos fight going into halftime, but in the event that they do and you're prepared for that, it's really good to know that stuff, but also on a, on a different scale too, of understanding how a college basketball practice works and getting to see it as it's run by a, uh, a basketball hall of famer. So like, let's say it's a two hour practice. Jim Beheim is very hands off for the first hour and he watches practice and the assistants run it. And then in the second hour, he steps in and does all the tweaking of the offense and of the two, three zone. So it was just cool to be able to know that. And now it's something that I pay a lot of attention to uh, having done high school basketball and for ESPN and now doing more college basketball is getting an understanding of who are the assistants, what are their backgrounds, who's responsible for what. And so it's made me pay a lot more attention to the intricacies of a college basketball program. You did that. Obviously, you said your first year and then you went in. uh, You did student media after that. You did. Uh, I know you're an AER guy. You're a Z89 guy. The, of course, highly rated Pearl and the Cuz talk show. Um, how long? How many years did that last? Just one year, and then uh, it became uh, eventually 
a show with uh, Alex Perlman, who's at the University of Arkansas, Kevin Brown, uh, the voice of the Syracuse Chiefs and of uh, some hockey and uh, high school football on ESPNU. And uh, we had a, uh, a I want to say it was a Sunday morning show uh, later as well, but Pearl and the Cuz, obviously uh, the most memorable name for its unoriginality. <laughs> well, well, there were a couple other really bad nicknames that you had, though, that you opted not to take, wasn't there? I didn't opt not to take them. My choice uh, for the show that ran in our senior year was Sports Breakfast, <laughs> uh, which reg- regrettably did not uh, win the uh, the vote among the three of us, although to this day I still think it would have been a great one. We ended up with Keeping the Faith, which was based off of a Billy Joel song. So being with two guys who are big music guys in uh, Kevin and Alex, I was outvoted two to one. Well, now that it's out there, by the way, and I don't know if you can talk about this because of who your employer is, but uh, Richard Deitch had the stuff about Greeny getting his own TV show now. Uh, you wait. Uh, it's going to be a sports breakfast with Mike Greenberg. And I hope that the royalties do trickle down to me somehow <laughs> because it's a, it's a great name. Anything before noon involving sports, how could sports breakfast not be the name? <laughs> I think they tried cold pizza once. It didn't work out too well. <laughs> um, you got into baseball, though. That's where you, you got your professional start. Uh, I know you did Cape Cod. You were in Falmouth for a year. And then you worked with Benetti uh, in Syracuse. Walk me through your, your baseball roots and how you got into this and, and getting paid to do it. Syracuse doesn't have a baseball team, the university, which is a, a darn shame, but also considering it snows a lot, probably not a bad idea. Yeah, fair. So um, for people who don't know Dan Duva, Dan is the voice of the Syracuse Crunch, uh, Tam- still Tampa Bay affiliate in the AHL uh, sure. in Syracuse. Yeah. Uh, I, I've already laid out, I don't know anything about hockey. <laughs> so uh, Dan and his friend Guy Benson, who came from Ridgewood, New Jersey, Guy is now a conservative uh, political commentator. Very good. Um, they they got started uh, basically the pioneers of broadcasting in the Cape Cod Baseball League. And so my family had always vacationed in Cape Cod. And so this is January of my freshman year. So we're talking about nine years ago, 2008. And I'm sitting in my dorm in Brewster Hall uh, at Syracuse. And I'm thinking, man, I would love to get an internship in the Cape Cod Baseball League. And so I applied to every team that had an email listing on their website, even if they didn't have an actual job listing. I just sent them an email anyway, Um, which if there's any footnotes to take away from this, that might be number one is relentless persistence. There's a fine line between being a pest and being persistent. Let someone else be the judge of that. Just be the pest and then see if they like you. Um, And the only team that really got back to me was the Falmouth Commodores. At the time, the person who was in charge of the uh, broadcasting program there, the late Pat Loftus, uh, a great guy who just passed away within the last year, unfortunately, um, he had just taken over, was a retired Wall Street trader, and coincidentally had emailed Dan Duva, who went to Syracuse and was kind of the pioneer of Cape Broadcasting, saying, hey, do you have any recommendations of any kids who went to Syracuse? Well, the email from me popped up the next day in his inbox, and Pat thought that I had been recommended by Dan Duva. (laughs) Important side note, I was not recommended by Dan Duva. Important side note number two, I had no baseball broadcasting experience, hence no baseball tape, uh, yet I still got the internship anyway. So I did that for two years, the summers of 2008 and the summer of 2009, and then uh, prior to the summer of 2010, our friend Jason Benetti became the voice of the Syracuse Chiefs as Bob McGilligate, uh went on to become the radio voice of the Columbus Blue Jackets. And uh, Jason turned to students at WAER, uh, one of the two campus radio stations at Syracuse, seeing if anybody was interested in, and this is also a key designation, being the pregame and postgame and in-game update guy for the Chiefs, not the number two broadcaster. Well, as time went along and I had uh, sent in my application for that and had been accepted somewhere around October, uh, come like March, he goes, oh, by the way, uh, I didn't find a number two, so you're the number two announcer now, (laughs) and uh, you're going to be traveling with me throughout the course of the summer. Oh, okay, cool. So uh, that's how I uh, went from unpaid intern in Cape Cod for two summers, 
to uh, lucking my way into as a 20 year old. So like I couldn't even go to the bar after the game, which in the AAA international league where all of the announcers are way older, most have kids and all of the players are certainly of drinking age, unless they're a phenom rising into a quick start of the major league baseball also can go out after the game. It was Jason Benetti and underage me. Um, you go to Fort Wayne after that. How many, how many years were you in Syracuse? Uh, I was in Syracuse just for the 2010 season. And Did you go to Fort Wayne um, in 2011? So, no, I didn't go right to Fort Wayne. I had a couple stops in between. Uh, first, I went to um, Dayton, Ohio. Oh, that's right. I forgot about um, the Dragons. Yeah, the Dayton Dragons, the Reds single-A affiliate. And then from Dayton, I went to Burlington, Vermont. And uh, was the play-by-play voice of the University of Vermont women's basketball team. Uh, so that was summer of 2011, winter of 2011 into 2012, and then ultimately ended up with my first full-time job as the voice of the Fort Wayne Tin Caps, uh, the Padres affiliate in the Midwest League, low A baseball. Here's the thing that I think most people will find curious as well, and as we find out talking to people throughout the course of this podcast, there is no one way to get to. Uh, wherever you would like to on this road. Uh, describe the journey from being Fort Wayne's low-A baseball announcer to, I, I found the press release just before I, I hopped on the call with you, that said, uh, voice of Tin Caps gets national job with ESPN. Uh, how did you make that journey, that leap, um, and what was the series of events that, that got you to a point where that was possible? Uh, it started with really good advice from Jason Benetti. So the summer we worked together in 2010, he put me into a lot of situations where I was uncomfortable, but they really helped me grow. The first of which was calling the opening day game on radio by myself. And I don't know if that tape exists anywhere, but <laughs> I hope not. But if it does, it's really, really bad. And I be I was I was still in college at that point. That was between my junior and senior years uh, at Syracuse, and so uh, having not been humbled by the real world yet, I thought I was really really good and I was really really bad. And um, so it started there, and then Jason got me on the track of reaching out to at least three people a month whose work that I admired, whether it's other minor league broadcasters, whether it's major league broadcasters, and just sending out my tape to people and trying to get feedback outside of him listening to my tape, which, uh, you know, Jason and I would sit there every night and listen to a half inning of the game that we had called together, which uh, I can't thank him enough for doing that. And also for pushing me to reach out to people who, you know, admittedly, as a 20-year-old, I was really nervous reaching out to people who are way older and and calling games in the major leagues. But you'll find that doing that, there are a lot of people who are really willing to help and offer great feedback because they understand and have been through those ranks before. Um, And so I I reached out to a lot of people that way. And so um, when when I took the Fort Wayne job, part of the appeal of that job was that Fort Wayne televised all of its home games, which is really rare in minor league baseball. The only other teams that do that, and it may have changed over the last five years, but back then were triple A teams. So you have one low A team, and I want to say four or five triple A teams that televised all of their home games. Off the top of my head, I can think of Lehigh Valley, uh, Indianapolis, and uh, I don't know the others anymore. And, and Indy's a simulcast um, too, so... That's not even a full deal. Right. Yeah. So it's not, it's not even really the same. Um, and so I, I said, well, this is a great chance to get that opportunity to do TV. And I had no idea what I was doing. You, sometimes you just have to sit down, suck, and do it, get better, and not be worried about sending out a tape that's not great to other people because, you know, you just you need people to tell you this is how you get better. And it's really uncomfortable to do that, to – go kneel in front of somebody basically and have them say, look, you know, I'm, I'm the new guy on, on the block, but I would love to get your feedback on this. And one of the people that I sent my tape out to was Bill Roth, who was the longtime voice of the Hokies at Virginia tech. And I sent my baseball tape to Bill and Bill said, well, um, 
you know, I can give you some feedback on it, but I haven't really done TV in quite some time. How about I send you along to somebody else who produced baseball with me when I did a couple games for ESPN back in the early nineties. Um, and so through that contact, my tape ended up with a producer at ESPN and ultimately in the hands of the folks who are in charge of assigning games for ESPN three. And so that was like July of 2012. And all of a sudden, November of 2012 rolls around. I hadn't spoken to anybody since then. Um, and I get an email that says, Hey, can you do a couple ESPN three basketball games up at Wisconsin? And my initial thought was, Hey, do you know that I've never done any basketball <laughs> on TV? And then uh, my internal regulator took over and responded, of course I can do those games at Wisconsin. Um, so I went from guy who had only done radio to guy who stumbled his way into doing baseball on TV to guy who stumbled his way into doing basketball on TV. And um, so my, my, my next big opportunity actually came when um, I got to do some games a little bit closer to home on ESPN3 at Notre Dame, uh, which was only two hours away instead of six to Madison, Wisconsin. And it was the night that Jim Beheim was scheduled to win his 900th game. Oh, mercy. Which, yeah. Now, now, now I don't, I'm not really sure what the official total is according to the NCAA anymore, but I guess that's a different story. 340-something. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so did he, did, he, uh, did he re-win his 900th game? Did he get there yet? I don't know. But um, So that game was supposed to be on ESPNU. It got bumped up to ESPN2 for a little bit more visibility. So then they needed to pick a game to fill the slot on ESPNU and ended up being my game. So the color analyst, uh, Sean Carney, who is now on the basketball staff at Colorado, um, he got pulled off the game a couple of days in advance. So I'm thinking, oh, okay, I understand if I get pulled off, you know, and, and somebody else who actually does TV games gets brought in. Um, but I got left on the game. So the first game I ever did on ESPNU was with LaFonso Ellis. It was uh, Fort Wayne at Notre Dame, and it was kind of a sink or swim moment. And, uh, yeah, so I, I did my first televised game from there, and uh, I guess it wasn't terrible, and I got a few more after that, and uh, things have progressed uh, steadily since then for me. This is a favorite Richard Deitch question on the, uh, the media podcast for Sports Illustrated. What's the feedback system like? at ESPN and, and in those situations in particular, did you hear anything back after those first couple of games in particular, after that uh, IPFW at that time, Notre Dame game, uh, did you hear anything back from people to say this was good, this was bad, or is it just when the phone keeps ringing, that's affirmation? Yeah. Rest in peace, IPFW, by the way, <laughs> or as I saw labeled at, labeled in one other place, very curiously this year, IUP Fort Wayne, which has <laughs> never been a designation. I am very, so I lived in Fort Wayne for three years. I am very defensive of Fort Wayne. I really love the city and the university is uh, now just Fort Wayne for branding purposes. Yeah. This may affect no one listening to this podcast, but unless uh, by the way, sure. unless you're a, a non-revenue sport, in which case you're still IPFW on the jerseys, they haven't changed them all yet. Hey, you got to give them some time, all right? <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, I wish I could say I remember whether I got an email or a phone call after that. Um, I don't remember. But really, the, the feedback system is, you know, like, like Anish Shroff said when, when he was on the podcast with you, it's, it's kind of whether you get more work or not. And that's why I think it's so important for people, at, especially at the early stages of your career, is to build a group of people who, you know, I've heard some people use the term board of directors um, for your own career and find out people who are willing to give you honest feedback and not just go to your relatives or your mom or your uncle who says, hey, great job. And they really have no idea how broadcasting works. Um, but to find people who have been there before and are willing to tell you, look, you really could have done better in this situation or, Hey, you've improved in this area and people who are willing to invest themselves in your career. Now that's not to say that at ESPN, there aren't people who, if I reach out and say, Hey, will you look at the under 16 to the under 12 stretch of this game that I called that I'm not, that there aren't people who will give me feedback, but simply based on the pure volume of games, 
there isn't there isn't someone whose job it is at ESPN to say, all right, um, I'm going to give you feedback on this game, expect it by this date, where, like, I know, having heard Joe Buck talk enough times that at Fox, uh, like when Troy Aikman started working with him, he really wanted to get feedback of, of what things were like because he missed that from being a quarterback. You either win or you lose. That's good feedback. And so they get a lot more detailed feedback. Granted, every other network that's not ESPN has a way smaller inventory of games, so that makes it a lot easier. Any given night on a Saturday or afternoon into night, let's just say on one ESPN channel, ESPNU, there might be six games on. So it's it's not possible for one person to sit there and watch every game and give feedback on it, but it is, I think, incumbent upon people who want feedback at any level, whether it's radio or TV, to go find people who will help you do that. And that's something that I think is really important to do because otherwise you may not get the feedback you want. It'd be a pretty boring job, but it might actually be a pretty cool job too, actually, if they, if they made something for that. <laughs> um, yeah, that- I just, it would, it would take someone who really loves broadcasting to be able to do it and to sit there and, and watch a lot of tape. Um, the, the first games, the early games, when you started doing baseball on TV and then I, the Wisconsin games too, what was it like to, I, I mean, the way you said it, what was it like to suck first and figure it out? What were the things that you internally, before you were even sending uh, that tape out to people, uh, what were you internally saying to yourself about how it was going? Uh, what bothered you early? What were the things that were your earliest stumbling blocks or, or maybe successes in getting used to being on TV? Uh, wearing makeup. <laughs> <laughs> that was one part of it. And... Now, you know, not even having to deal with play-by-play, but just like, what do you look like on camera? It's a visual medium, right? So like, I have, historically speaking, worn my hair really short. And then I got advice from one agent who uh, is not my agent and, and was just somebody who I had talked to at the time, like, hey, why don't you put gel in your hair? And my God, did I look like an idiot doing that. <laughs> but I tried that for a few games too, because I just didn't know what would look good. And like, I have figured out that even though, you know, the, the classic TV look is like a full head of hair and like, you know, tan skin, but I like to wear my hair shorter and that's who I am. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to grow my hair out and be styled hair guy because a couple people think that it looks good. I like it this way. So that's just, that's where, that's how I'm more comfortable. And hopefully I'm not judged off of what my hair and my face looks like but more on the way I call a game. Um, so that was part of it was starting to understand um, how to do makeup, which now I actually think I'm pretty good at, um, which is, I don't know if that's a good thing to boast about outside of the broadcasting world. But <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's, that's a good okay. first date. Like, thing. I, like, like I said, I've been a loser for a long time. <laughs> I was interested in public policy at high school, so I'm not, I'm not really worried about that. Um, broadcasting wise was, going from radio to TV, how do I know when I'm talking too much and when I'm not talking enough? And it was hard in those first early games too, because Wisconsin was a top 25 team and they're playing Presbyterian or they're playing Louisiana Lafayette or Notre Dame is playing the red storm, the red flash of St. Francis PA. Um, I hope I got their mascot, right? You did, but you know, they're, they're not games that are close. So when you're trying to learn something, you want it to be easy, but then again, you're calling games that are 40-point games at halftime. So you're talking more than you normally would in those games, and so what's normal in a blowout is not going to be normal in a closed game. And then learning when to punctuate a call and when not to punctuate a call. So if it's a 30-point game and Sam Decker, who was a freshman at the time, nails a three, how excited do I get for that? Because I want to practice being good at that, but it doesn't make sense to get excited over a three-pointer that makes it 36-2 to two instead of 33-2. to two. Um, But I think that there's, there's parts of it, too, where like you just call it for the tape and to try things out for yourself. Because realistically, how many people are watching that game in the non-conference schedule? Wisconsin fans a handful of Presbyterian fans from South Carolina, and my mom. 
So I'm not really going to be turning away an audience at that point. It was the same in minor league baseball too. Uh, what's your audience? Is there a lot of local audience for the tin caps in Fort Wayne? I'd love to think so. The answer is probably not. And so most of your audience is probably from out of town. So you just have to do stuff to get comfortable with doing it. So if that means talking a little bit more than usual, okay. If it means laying out to practice laying out and getting comfortable with that, which five years later, I'm still uncomfortable with laying out in certain situations just because I still have more radio experience than I do on TV. But you just have to do it at a certain point and say, you know what? Sorry about sorry to the audience who wants to hear everything described in a really enthusiastic way. But I'm going to try out something new today because I want to get better at it. And so it's just feeling those things out and watching games and figuring out how to do it. Maybe my <laughs> strangest thing I ever did was on a Sunday night baseball game. I sat for about four innings and transcribed word for word on a Word document everything that Dan Shulman said. And um, I just wanted to get, a, to get a grasp of, like, okay, how much does he talk versus how much does the analyst talk? When he talks, what does he talk about? What are the important things that he should be talking about? Because the analyst that I worked with on my Fort Wayne baseball games was not a former baseball player. It was a local sportscaster. And I, we worked together great. We got along really well. But it's just, as you know from working with analysts, the level of expertise of your analyst impacts what you talk about and the flow of your game and where you can go in certain situations. You can't ask someone who's never been a pitcher, are you thinking curveball here in a 3-2 count? You can. The answer you get may not be great, but you can ask that. But it's different if you're working with uh, Kurt Schilling or Jess Mendoza or whomever the analyst is versus someone whose background is in doing TV sports. So you just have to try things out for yourself to get a grasp of how do I do it and then watch the best, which I think Dan Shulman is the best, if not one of the best to do it and see how they do it and then try and bring your level close to their level. What'd you learn from that transcription? Um, probably that I was doing too much of a radio call, you know, I think back to one of the first tapes I sent out and it was uh, the pitcher was getting the ball back from the catcher, tight shot on the pitcher. And I said something like, as his jersey blows in the breeze. Well, guess what? Everybody can see that. So that's okay. We don't need to do that. Um, it also made me realize that I needed to, at that level, it's not like you have a full crew that's dedicated from eight in the morning till the game's over to putting together graphics for your game and pre-producing elements. So, you know, the, the person who was in charge of uh, producing the game was part of our game day video crew who would show up at six o'clock for an eight o'clock game or five o'clock for a seven o'clock game. So I took it upon myself after that to really start putting together a lot more graphics for our games to support the things we wanted to talk about rather than just kind of going off into obscure conversations because at a network level, you have a huge amount of research and support. Um, so the things that I might put in my game notes that I've typed up by noon that day are also going to be some of the things that I will pass along to the production crew to say, hey, if you guys have time to build this graphic on the starting pitcher, that would be great because it would support what we're doing. So understanding that I had to view the game a little bit more from a production standpoint, too, um, to be able to support the things we wanted to talk about during the game. Harshest criticism you've gotten. That was constructive. Um, it was from Jason Benetti, actually. When I, when I applied for the, uh, num when I applied for the, what would become the number two job, uh, was I sent him a mock sports update and he sent me a one sentence reply. Oh no. And it was, send me one that sounds like you care. That's, that sounds like him, actually. <laughs> which, which Jason, to his credit, has very much tempered his criticism <laughs> since then, probably. Um, but I also appreciated that he wasn't afraid to rip me. Because, you know, now if, you, if I'm reaching out to somebody who I've never reached out to before, 
they're probably not going to write me back something that was borderline insulting. <laughs> but looking back on it now, I appreciate that Jason was willing to say things like that to me because it made me better. And it made me realize, well, I really didn't put my all into that. Now, Jason, I, if he listens to this, is going to call me, text me, or email me and tell me that I am an idiot once again for sharing this story. But it's already been printed somewhere before in a Jason Benetti profile, so it's okay. Um, we were doing a Scranton-Syracuse game on the road, a doubleheader. And I don't remember exactly what it was we were working on that day, what he wanted me to try to get better at. But uh, after one of my half innings was over, he kicked me out of the booth and made me go sit in the stands for the rest of the game, presumably to teach me a lesson. But at the time, it just made me really mad at him. Um, but that was also a pretty harsh criticism was you suck so bad. I'm kicking you off the air for the rest of the game. <laughs> That's yeah. I, I think I've gotten the send me one. You, that sounds like you care email before, or at least line of criticism back from him. So uh, I mean, it makes you better, but yeah, no, I, I, I should, I should clear up for people who don't know Jason <laughs> is that Jason is one of the most thoughtful. Yes. And, uh, Caring. I think caring. Yeah. That, and and it, it came out of a place of caring, thoughtful and caring people that I've ever met. And now we'll call one of the best friends I think I will ever have in the world. So I don't mean it to sound like he was some type of demonic person, <laughs> but that was just the way that he taught then. And he's certainly evolved to become a different style of teacher now. But I think the best feedback that any of us can ever get is honest feedback. And that's what it was. I'm probably going to get a text about this from him, too, if he ever listens to it, so it's okay. We're both in that boat. Yeah, de I'm definitely getting shredded over that. <laughs> That's okay, though. Um, I want to talk to you. Uh, I've gotten some questions about it, and I've been through the process a little bit myself as well. Um, but people that have listened have asked about the role of agents in broadcasting. Uh, so if you're willing, uh, can you tell me a little bit about the process that, that you go through in terms of uh, acquisition, in terms of what they do to help you, um, what those relationships are like. Sure. Well, the, the first part of the answer is there's no right time to get an agent. So um, I had a conversation with somebody about this earlier today of they had an offer on the table to work with an agent. And the question to me was, do I take that offer? What do I do? And so it, it, it just goes back to, I think, partially of creating your opportunity and reaching out to a lot of people to solicit feedback, to get to know people throughout the industry at all different levels, because that's where opportunity arises. So the opportunity I got with um, the chiefs was just, you know, by kind of being in the right place at the right time and hell that's half the battle sometimes too. But the position I got in Dayton was through Matt Park, the voice of the Syracuse Orange. And we got to know each other with me being a student, but also doing some work for the Syracuse All Access platform. Matt became familiar with me and my work and was willing to pass my name along to somebody else. Um, the job that I got in Burlington, Vermont, with the University of Vermont, came through uh, at first Joe Lee, who is the general manager of WAER radio on the Syracuse campus. And he reached out to recent alums and said, Hey, if anybody's interested in this opportunity, here's the email address to apply. The job I got in Fort Wayne was based off of a recommendation I got from Tom Nichols, who I worked for in Dayton. So everything I got was through some type of a connection. Um, and even working at ESPN was through a connection. So it, it's not as though hiring an agent is the, be all end all of I'm now, I now have an agent who works for me. Now I'm going to get all the jobs that I never thought I was going to be able to get. It doesn't work that way because, and agents will tell you this too. They don't tell people who to hire. They just put you in front of people who make hiring decisions. Your work still has to be good. You still have to be reputable. And ultimately people want to hire people who they know and who come with a good reputation. So before you get hired, it's not just going to be, well, he comes from this agency, but let's reach out and see if other people know who this person is and what their work is like. So 
Um, I started looking for an agent in 2013. And so I've been freelancing with ESPN probably for about a year at that point. And um, the level of my work was probably not such at that point that I think any agent would have taken me on as a client, but I felt like it was something that I wanted to start exploring. And so I think I spoke to two or three different agencies before I ended up where I am now, which is with Max Sports and Entertainment, which is uh, headed by Mark Lepsalter out of New York City. Um, and so I, I met with a couple different agents and we just talked about um, what my background was like. And my questions were, you know, what, what would you envision as a plan for me? And um, the reason I ended up with Max was just because I felt like it was the most comfortable. I, I look at it almost as like, uh, a dating game, if you will. And it's not necessarily like if you're out at a bar and the first drunken person, that's not a good analogy. I'm not calling agents drunken well, people. Well, keep in like, mind too, we, somebody, we started this podcast off saying that we're all socially awkward people. Uh, and now we're talking about dating games. So, <laughs> right. Like I don't even, I don't even go to bars. So this is a totally <laughs> foreign analogy for me. Um, mostly because my bedtime is 10 PM. Well, there so, you go. There you uh, go. which that, that's a different story. But anyway, so, you know, let's say you're out at a party, right? And somebody comes stumbling up to you and they're like, hey, I'm really interested in you, which is the worst flirting ever. But, um, you know, if you have an agent who's running after you and saying, hey, we'll take you and they don't even know anything about you, that might sound appealing. But they also probably how much work can they really do for you if they're just taking you on maybe as like a volume thing where they might make money off of you, they might not rather than somebody who's really invested in you and is interested in your career and helping you grow together. And that's how I ended up where I am was meeting in person with the folks and getting a, a feel for who they were and how they operate. And then talking to people who are currently their clients as well, which I think is important to say, Hey, do they work diligently on your behalf? Has it been to your satisfaction of what, of what their work has been like? Um, and part of it too, is, is a financial decision. You know, the, the market standard is 10% for having an agent of what your income is and, and what you're going to pay, uh, out of your paycheck. And so the question is when you want to hire an agent, do you feel like if you hire an agent and you get a job, is the job, you know, with the level, you know, a job commensurate with your experience, um, are you going to be making more even after that 10% is gone than you were in your previous job? Because if the answer is no, then is it worthwhile for you at that point? Maybe not. I don't know. It's a personal decision for everybody. But I felt like when I, when I eventually signed on with Max where I am now, it was the right time because I had made a good inroads with ESPN and had done a decent number of games there. I had begun freelancing with the Big Ten Network as well and doing some women's basketball and women's volleyball for them and was hoping that the next time that maybe a bigger opportunity arose that they could be of help for me. And so as it turned out, um, it was the summer of 2014 where ESPN ultimately made me an offer to be a full-time employee Joe Davis had recently left. Carter Blackburn had recently left. And it's not like anybody has ever said this to me, but if you just put the pieces of the puzzle together, um, there were, those are two full-time announcers who had just left the company and I was a known commodity. So I think it all made sense that uh, if they were looking for somebody to then fill those roles, here was a guy who was already doing basketball games and was someone whose work they knew. And so I had an agent at that point. And at that time, they, I didn't need an agent to put me in front of ESPN, but it did help to have someone who was able to know what a fair market value is for, a, at, that, at that point, a 23- or 24-year-old announcer um, and to make sure that you're best represented when it comes to making a business decision. And, uh, and that's where it was helpful for me. How many games do you do a week now with all of that? Um, football, one a week. And, or uh, on certain occasions too. Um, so I did like a, a Sunbelt game later in the season plus a Saturday game. And now I'll do anywhere between two to three basketball games a week. So, uh, you know, let's say it's a normal week, which I have this week. I'll do a t uh, SEC game on a Tuesday and then uh, an ACC game on a Saturday. What do you do all day? 
A lot of reading. <laughs> um, I would I would like to if if there's a title for this episode, I would like to make it in praise of beat reporters. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, because you know, as a as a national uh, broadcaster, meaning somebody who is not just doing one team throughout the course of the year, when you go in to do a game, you don't know everything that the local media does or the team announcer does for doing a game. And so, especially for football, where there's just so much and so many players that are uh, on each team, basketball obviously being a little bit different, I want to read everything that I can, you know, going back to the beginning of the year on what a team has done. You know, I'll, I'll use the, the beat writers with whom I'm most familiar, and that's Mike Waters and Donna DeTota of the Syracuse Post-Standard who I think are also two of the best at what they do. Yep. But the coverage that they do for Syracuse basketball is phenomenal. And it, it's, it's year round. So, you know, while I may not be reading back to what they wrote in June, I will be reading back to what they wrote in October from when official practices start for a Syracuse game. And so I've got Syracuse Notre Dame coming up on January 21st. Uh, apologies if you're listening January 21st or later, but, um, Go back and read everything that's been written. Go back and watch at least one game for each team to get a grasp for who are the rotation players, uh, whether it's football, whether it's basketball. So, like, I had North Carolina State in the Independence Bowl against Vanderbilt. NC State used, like, 10 different receivers, and then they've got an H-back, fullback, tight end guy, Jalen Samuels, who plays all over the field. And you look at his stats, and you're like, how do they use this guy? So it's watching a game to understand where exactly a player like that fits in. Or, you know, I just had Alabama in basketball a couple of days ago. They don't have a player who scores, who averages 10 points a game. Oh, the only did, team they, in Division One that does that. They did against so us. So it's, like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, Dazon Ingram is their best player at 9.9 points a game. What is everyone else on that team doing, and how do they win games? Yeah. Um, so, so to go watch a game before they start and then try and literally just Google the words, uh, you know, Bonzi Colson basketball, if it's a Notre Dame game and he's one of their best players and see, Hey, did, did the newspaper in Massachusetts from where he grew up, write any feature stories on this guy and learning everything that you can about him. So I, I, I just try and cover the team from all angles and understand as much as I can about a team and about a program and about, like I talked about before, who are the assistants. So in basketball, having done four years of ESPNU's high school basketball coverage, I perhaps maybe more than most people, I don't know, I'm really interested in recruiting and who are the lead recruiters on a staff, which guys cover which areas, who's the guy who's the former AAU coach, what was this guy ranked in the ESPN 100 coming out of high school, what AAU program did he play for? What connections does he maybe have with other players in college basketball because they played on the summer circuit together? So really trying to get uh, an all-encompassing 360-degree view of a team. And uh, if I remember, and I'm not too lazy, also working out at some point, but sometimes I don't, well, and I just eat cheese curds instead. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask you because I mean we had when we had Amin on the podcast uh, a couple months ago talked about and and he's crazy because he does like nine games in a week but uh, yeah I don't know when he sleeps he doesn't um, <laughs> <laughs> but but like the the having how you structure your life um, you know walk me through a day you're not calling a game what's the day for you uh, well today was a little atypical so like today is a Thursday I didn't call a game today. Um, I kind of slept in, uh, till like eight o'clock. Uh, I had a chiropractor appointment at 10 o'clock. They're great. Then I had a conference call for, uh, we have a biweekly, uh, ESPN college basketball conference call. So that was 1230 till about two. Um, there are a couple Syracuse guys who are a couple years younger than, uh, you and me, uh, who had sent me tapes to listen to. So I spent about an hour listening to, other people's play-by-play tapes, which I love to do. Um, and uh, that's a certainly a solicitation to anybody who is listening to the podcast who uh, wants me to listen to their tape. If you hate me, then also ignore that advice. <laughs> um, but 
uh, knowing that, you know, I just said how important it is. You know, I, I always say to younger guys from Syracuse or anywhere else, you know, if you want me to listen to your tape, I'm always going to listen to it because um, we were all the just out of college guy at one point, And I still sell my tape around to people. So I think it would be hypocritical not to do that. Um, and then after we get off the phone, the rest of my day is going to be spent um, diving down a Missouri Valley Conference uh, wormhole because I've got one Missouri Valley Conference game coming up between Wichita State and Illinois State. Um, as of right now, I haven't watched any Missouri Valley basketball uh, by midnight tonight. Hopefully I'll have watched two Missouri Valley Conference games because uh, I've got Wichita State on my DVR from last night when they played uh, Loyola Chicago. So, um Days are weird, and uh, oh yeah, I, I promised myself that I was going to do 45 minutes on the uh, spinning bike as well, and uh, usually I am I get too lazy and don't go to the gym. Like that's that's probably the quote unquote worst thing that I do is just say, uh, well, well, I could I could do another 30 minutes of prep here because I'm the type of guy that even when I sit down for a game, I think that there's something I've missed in terms of prep uh-huh. and. Hopefully there's not, and I'm not going to say that I've definitely gotten everything because you go to a shoot around, whether it's as a network announcer or as the local guy. And you're like, wait a second, that guy has a tattoo. I didn't notice before. Or like, Hey, they've never played zone defense before. Have I just been missing something for the last month? And then you get really nervous. So I just worry that I'm always missing something. So, you know, that that's another part of play by play too, is, not working in minor league baseball where for five years I was either at the park every day during the season, or I was working in the office nine to five. Uh, But then when you don't do that anymore, no one tells you what time to work. I could wait. I could, I could work from 3am till noon and that could be my nine hour work day. And as long as I get my work done and I show up and I'm prepared for the game, nobody cares. Um, so it's, I, I think that was one of the things that I struggled with a couple of years ago was switching into this job. And, and this is not like a plea for pity by any means. It was just a weird life change was figuring out, okay, when do I stop working on my charts and when do I do things that other people do? Because probably the biggest burden that I have is walking my dog three times a day and like making sure he stays alive. But I don't have a wife. I don't have kids. So you know, when, when those stages of my life, if they come around, happen, then I'm going to have to re- figure out how to do it all over again. And I don't, I don't know how people do it now. Like people like Kevin Kugler, who I think is amazingly talented, travels all over the country, has multiple kids and a wife, and doesn't live in a city that's a hub airport. Like, he must have a phenomenal wife and be a phenomenal dad when he's home. But I don't know how he structures his day or his prep time. Yeah. Because for me now, I feel like I am cramming as much time as I can into charts without even having much of a social life. Again, loser. Um, or a wife or kids. And so I'm still I'm still figuring it out. I don't I don't have an answer, but the people who have a family, I really don't know how they do it. See, and that's what I'm most curious about, and I'll, I'll let you go on this note because I don't want to take too much more of your time. Um, so, um, but do, do you like the aspect of being the network guy where you can, I mean, if you wanted to live wherever you wanted to live, you could do that. Um, you can dictate whatever you want your life to be in terms of, uh, you know, I've always thought to myself, because um, I'm in the office every day and then I've got to do games and all that stuff, uh, I've always thought to myself, geez, if I ever got to a spot where I didn't have to be in the office every day, it would be amazing. And I'd, there are all these things I'd want to do. And then I stop and think about it and I'd probably be in my pajamas eating ice cream, doing charts at two o'clock in the afternoon. Um, what did you think when you first got into that and you first got kind of turned free and it was all on to you? Um, and how hard is it for you to, to force yourself to have a life as opposed to just uh, being a broadcaster? And not yeah, having an definitely... office where you're around people every day. <laughs> yeah, my office is my desk in my living room. So I'm frequently interrupted by uh, my dog, Leroy, bringing uh, his bone over to play uh, <laughs> during the day. So um, it was weird. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to say that uh, it was 
it was something that came easy at first. I think the first day that I was supposed to be preparing for football games a couple of years ago, um, I, it, it, like five o'clock rolled around and I was like, oh my God, all I did was read nonsense on Twitter all day. I have this freedom now and I don't know what to do with it. Uh, and then eventually I realized, okay, you know what? You don't have to go to an office at nine o'clock, but you probably should still wake up and adhere to a similar schedule. And so that was part of the discipline that I gave to myself was like, okay, have a normal work day at least. So then things feel normal. Um, I don't necessarily miss the day-to-day aspect of being a team announcer because part of the novelty of being at a network is getting to just drop in for a game and see what the major storylines are with a given program or a given league. And then being able to, at the end of the day, pack up and not worry about, all right, well, what am I talking about on the coaches show this week when the team is 0-5 in league play and 9-30 and overall? I don't, I don't miss that of trying to spin negative into positive. Stop calling um, out my life. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it happened to me, too. With uh, I did a weekly show with the Vermont women's basketball team, which the year before I was there was a really good team. The year I was there was not as good of a team. And so to try and fill 30 minutes on the radio each week, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I understand it. And, <laughs> and so that aspect, I don't necessarily miss. I do miss the camaraderie of, you know, and I'll say the people that I worked with in Fort Wayne, who I'm still really good friends with, and uh, I went back to visit this summer, of sitting in the office, and I'm definitely the guy who starts and named office discussions and drives people off the track of doing real actual work and just likes to have fun. Mm. And so I, I miss the camaraderie of that or like, you know, we were, the people I worked with, we were in a volleyball league together and, and now uh, I've moved to Chicago and I really, I don't know a lot of people here. Um, and when I'm home, I like to be home. Um, and when I'm on the road, you know, you go out and eat with your crew or your color analyst and you eat at a lot of good places and go to a lot of fun cities. I do like that aspect of it too, of traveling places that I would never otherwise travel. Um, but I, I want to kind of paraphrase, uh, Annie McCullough, who is the Dodgers beat writer for the LA times and, uh, surprise another Syracuse graduate, mafia. which has, uh, which has Northwestern and Missouri alums shaking their heads everywhere. We've they, just tuned they out everybody. Syracuse already. <laughs> right. So, um, but he, 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 he wrote this piece, uh, maybe it wasn't a piece, but I think it was a Q and a that he did. And it was, it was asking him about, Hey, you covered the, the Mets and the Yankees when you were right out of college. And then you went from doing that to covering the Royals and the world series and then going to LA and Andy's just had this amazing rise in his career. And he said something to the effect of like, look, when, when you start out doing something like this and you're in a big market you're just kind of faking it at first. Like nobody knows what they're doing when they're 23 or they're 24 and they're out there doing it. And I wrote him this email and I was like, Andy, thank you for saying that because uh, I kind of felt that way too, because I didn't know what I was doing. Like I'm on national TV, but like a year before that, I was a guy who was doing local cable broadcasting for a single A baseball team. So I, I made this big jump and had all this freedom, but I didn't really know what to do with it. And so you just kind of make it up as you go along. You know, I'm pulling up this email here from Andy, so hopefully he doesn't get mad at me. But he said, you know, one of the dumb parts about this job is we have to pretend like we have a bleeping clue what's going on when most of us know deep down that we're just faking it and hoping no one notices. And it's kind of true because, like, you just get into it, and there's no blueprint or playbook for – how to be a play-by-play announcer. And you mentioned it earlier about like, how does anybody get into the job they're in? There's no advice you can give anyone that says, oh, you want to be a doctor? Okay, get your undergrad, go to medical school. Congratulations, you're a doctor. Well, you want to be a broadcaster? Well, you might start out like Kevin Burkhart and you might be selling used cars in New Jersey. And five years later, after working with the Mets, now you're doing the number two Fox NFL game every week. Like, you just, you have no idea. And when Kevin Burkhardt started out as the Mets sideline guy, he was just naturally charismatic. It wasn't like anybody said, here's what we want you to do every day. He just found stories and got along really well with people. So, yeah, part of it was weird. And there is a part of it of 
traveling around the country that gets a little lonely at times. But I think you just have to make the best of the times when you become really good friends with the people who you work with because they're your family on the road. And then when you are home also, I think dedicating yourself to things that are outside of broadcasting, which I'm just learning to do now of like, whether it's finding a normal exercise regimen to stay healthy because you eat really poorly on the road. Um, and like finding time to read books, uh, or just like have a TV show you like, and not dedicating your life to prep, not to say that you shouldn't be all in on that because I think it's really important. And my schedule, uh, I think if I, if I laid out a day, would say I probably spend too much time on work some days, but just trying to figure out how to live a normal life. So like, I don't golf, which I know a lot of people like to do. So like when the summer rolls around and, and my schedule tapers off, I'm a little worried about like, what am I going to do? Hashtag first world problem. I know, but, um, it's just one of those things that comes with it. It's, it's a unique job in many ways. And, it's, uh, you know, I'm very lucky to be where I am. Um, but I think anybody who does this also has a personal side and, and that's where, uh, I think I'm still figuring it out a little bit. Cause thanks man. This is uh this is good. Who's to judge if it went well. I, I, I don't know. I just, I get, I get like a feel when it's done. I'm like, this went well. And uh, all right. I want you to, I want you to clip my voice so yes. that at the end I get to say marshmallow, take it away. I can do that. <laughs> it's a good thing he doesn't listen because I'm going to get sued. Right. Do you have the C-Sack and ASCAP license to play that song? No, no, absolutely not. Like, <laughs> no. Also, you know, what's a weird thing about the end of interviews, which I also just did. Hmm. You thanked me for being your guest, and then I said thank you for having me. Yeah. Would it be obnoxious if anyone at the end said you're, you're welcome, welcome. <laughs> for being guest? Right. Because any any other exchange goes thank you, you're welcome, not thank you, thank you. So just do you want to retape it? We can just go. We, we, I can say thank you. You know what? You're welcome. You've been graced with my presence. No. What? No. Then I'll be the worst <laughs> guest ever. And I'm going to edit this in so now, this was, so this is going to be the actual flat. ending. And that is the actual ending. Mike Cousins already said hit it marshmallow, so the music's been playing, and we've got to get up on out of here. Back here next week, though, so stick with us. Play by Playcast, and we're out till next week.